0: Hello, and welcome to The Burning Castle where each week we take a journey with someone who's looking at a world on fire and asking how they can bring their own form of iconoclastic change to make things a little or a lot better. For those who aren't familiar, the burning castle is a reference to the original iconoclast Abraham who sees a burning world and asks if there's no master at home to put out the flames. The response he receives is to go out and become a stronger person so he can create a better world with your host, Ashley Rinsberg.
1: Hello, and welcome to The Burning Castle. This is your host, Ashley Rinsberg. Today, we'll be talking to Chloe Valdari. Chloe is a writer and thinker and one of the few voices out there that strikes a note of sanity without losing any of the relevance she brings to every conversation. Her Twitter following is a lively and level-headed locus of discussion on everything from meaning to race, and her latest initiative, The Theory of Enchantment, presents a way forward in an environment clotted by hyperpartisan partisan rancor and empty virtue signaling. Check out Chloe on Twitter, that's Cvaldari, V-A-L-D-A-R-Y, and at theoryofenchantment.com. Also, don't forget to watch her TED talk from earlier this year on the TED.com website. Just as a reminder, this episode was recorded back when the show was called The Meaning Creators, in case you hear that name pop up in the interview. Now, on to the episode. Let me introduce myself. Let's do this. My name is Ashley. I am a writer and I've been in journalism here and there, freelance. I worked for The Tower, I think right around the time we published oh, cool. an essay of yours. Me, okay. David Hazoni and, uh, and Ben Kirstein. I've just kind of like, I've lived in Israel for 15 years. I grew up in the U.S. I went to college in New York and traveled when I was in my early 20s. And that kind of brought me here, stayed here, and wrote a book of short stories called Tel Aviv Stories, and have just finished a novel. And this is something I do, The Meaning Creators, just because... I'm seeing a lot of people just kind of grab their own creative thing and do it. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? It's like yeah. just all around me and, and people are not asking permission anymore and they're doing these great things each in their own specific way. Like a friend of mine here is an amazing coffee roaster. And it's like the guy is like psycho for coffee roasting. And it's just, he doesn't even like it, but he's like, he's got like an artistic need just to do it. Or a novelist, Eshkol Novo, who I interviewed, a friend of mine a quilter writing teacher has been on so it's people who are doing creative some things which is not necessarily sitting down writing haiku it's creativity <laughs> and it's you know big sense yeah and and in doing so they're creating meaning for people and meaning for themselves mm-hmm. and and i think this is something that you might be speaking to with the theory of enchantment but for me i look around i'm like okay clearly we're in crisis mm-hmm. What can we turn to, to get ourselves out of crisis? Meaning is like obvious, the obvious kind of tautological answer is not really saying that much. But the yeah. question for me is how do people create meaning? And that's why I wanted to launch this series because I want people to see that just like all the other people have appeared so far in the interview series, they could just do it themselves. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I was just looking at your Twitter stream, like those two guys who are doing the reaction videos. Yeah. And music. It's like, yes, thank you.
0: It's <laughs> yeah.
1: so cool that they're doing that. Yeah. Okay, so I'll turn it over to you. i just start with, like, a little bit about you, who you are, where you come from, and... Sure.
0: Okay, cool. I am Chloe. Hi, good to meet you.
1: you. I
0: am from New Orleans originally, moved to New York five years ago, so I'm a new New Yorker. My New Orleans origin story is probably relevant to how I became a creative being. I grew up in a very eclectic, some would say, (laughs) um, home. My home was infused with very much a spirit of inquiry and orthodoxy simultaneously. So I grew up in a Christian home that took Christianity very seriously, but the form of Christianity, the church I attended and that my parents are part of is a very non mainstream form of Christianity. It's very similar to Seventh day Adventists. If you're familiar with that denomination, Mm -hmm. Um, we went to church on Saturday instead of Sunday. We observed Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur instead of Christmas and Easter. In fact, on Christmas Day and on Easter Day, we spent our days reading the history of those two holidays and how they came to be and like unpacking the origin Mm, stories. Wow.
1: So that's that's fascinating.
0: Yes. Well, some would say nerdy, but fascinating is a better word. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's both. No, it was very good education that I received as a result of that. I had a very expansive ironically expansive worldview as a result, and I say ironic because again there's that orthodoxy to it. I was very strict about following to a T the interpretation of christianity that my parents had but simultaneously that strict interpretation entailed studying the origins of things and so that gave me a very cosmopolitan worldview at a very young age i was aware of ancient empires ancient history Mm. i was very aware of the fact that my presence in new orleans was not the only thing that existed (laughs) there are things that came before me that's helpful and there would be things that would come after me. So the presence of history was in my life at a very early age as a result
1: of that. That's amazing. Uh, That's very rare.
0: Yeah, I'm learning that. (laughs) I'm definitely learning that. I'm learning in retrospect the benefits of that educational experience. What else should you know about me? I mean, as a result of that sort of insider-outsider experience that I had with identity, because I, you know, was insider in the sense that, like, I I identified as a Christian, but I was an outsider— that I did not belong to mainstream Christianity. And simultaneously, because of the nature of the way we did rituals, observing a lot of Jewish festivals, I had an insider-outsider relationship with the Jewish community as well, which created an awareness of paradox, which is, you know, well, at some point was my DJ name. I'm not sure Mm. i go by that anymore, really. But (laughs) yeah, so that gave me a perception of the world or an ability to see the world in a paradoxical way
1: Yeah, almost a very jewish sounding way you know because no. I, I think about my growing up in where i grew up in philadelphia las vegas and you know mm-hmm. especially las vegas and also san diego i grew up partly because they're not particularly jewish places you, you mm-hmm. feel that difference and you feel you know you're part of the place because we were you know secular people just like secular people, but we knew we were Jewish. So there is that, There is always that. And the same here in Israel, because it's, you yeah. know, I belong here, but I kind of don't, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah. It definitely, it, it gives you, a I think, something observative. Uh, I think it puts people in a place where they can, where they almost are forced to observe, like you're step back.
0: Yeah, you're definitely sort of at a distance. And I think that that also, if you choose to, you can turn that into a, a very like that that can be a part of the process by which you become an individual because you're thrust into that insider outsider perception of the world it sort of forces mm-hmm. you to to be an individual and to be your own person I think so that you know influenced me a lot and then I became really heavily involved later on in college in the pro-Israel space as a result of that original affinity I had for Jewish culture which was initially you know cultivated by my religious upbringing so I read Leon Uris in high school by accident like my library was like giving away books and those are there are two books that I happened to pick up that were by Leon Uris so
1: what, the, which the exodus and
0: actually none of them were exodus
1: oh, even more <laughs> one
0: of, yeah one of them was Mila 18 and the other one was QV7
1: huh neither of which I've read
0: Very good books. I mean, I don't remember. I don't know if they were good books, but they were good. (laughs) They were good at the time. One was about the Warsaw Ghetto uprising. I actually forgot what the other one was about. But and then I ended up reading like most of his books after that, including Exodus in high school. But by the time I got to college, I switched sophomore year in college. I switched majors from film to international studies because I wanted to focus more on the Israel piece. And so I did Israel advocacy for three and a half years. Learned a lot, failed a lot, succeeded a lot, all the things. <laughs> Afterwards, I moved to New York, got a job at the Wall Street Journal, worked on a thesis at the journal on this topic of trying to figure out. First, it was initially how to how to persuade people to love Israelis. That was actually the initial that's a tough, question.
1: <laughs> that's a tough mission.
0: <laughs> that was the initial question, Great. and then it was like, <laughs> then it was like. Well, how do I get people to love in general? Because love is a practice and yeah. requires a deliberate dedication. And that became Theory of Enchantment. So there was an order of operations there for my origin story in order. So,
1: so how did you get to whatever Theory of Enchantment is? And what is it? What's at the core of it?
0: Yeah. So, you know, I was doing this thesis paper and I was asking, you know, how do you get people to learn how to love? And then I was like, well, maybe you have to figure out what people are already in love with and then use that as a conduit to build a framework to teach them how to love. And then I said, well, what are people already in love with? Oh, pop culture. And I was like, oh, there are all these things in pop culture that people seem to gravitate toward in mass. So what if I studied Nike, for example, and I studied Beyonce, and I studied Disney films, and what if I tried to figure out there's a common denominator amongst all these influencers and companies? I wonder what that would be. And so I did, and then I figured out that the common denominator was that they all created content where their audience saw themselves and their potential reflected in the content very much Mm -hmm. like... Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey, Archetype, playing themselves out in a lot of these brands, Mm -hmm. which is why we buy into them.
1: How did you get to that first question and answer of, A, how to get them to love, which I guess that's a bit more natural, but then it seems almost like, it doesn't seem so intuitive to jump from that to say, what do they already love? It feels like Mm -hmm. that was a creative step, you know, something that probably took some thinking or doing.
0: I think I was already into comparative literature, and I was already into the study, I was probably in the back of my head already into the study of pop culture. Like that was something that was, like I had remembered coming across a song by Drake and Rihanna years before this had happened, and like studying the lyrics and noticing that there was something related to human psychology in the lyrics. I was like, oh, that's interesting. And I remember English classes in high school having a huge impression upon me. And I, I just remember English classes being more like philosophy classes where we would study these texts by you know, Shakespeare and Nathaniel Hawthorne and all these brilliant people. But it wouldn't just be about the content, it would be about like how do you apply this content to your life. Mm-hmm. So I suppose that I already had that training to like look for patterns in certain things that make up our pop culture. And maybe I just came back to that. You know?
1: Do you think that's also connected to your upbringing in the sense of you know, that kind of deep interaction with text as, as modeling? You know what I mean? It's, I think yeah. with, for a lot of people, are just like they would come to a text and be like, "It's boring." You know what I mean? Yeah. Other things, but if you yeah. didn't have that option growing up, and this is what you were kind of taught to value.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. I I love my upbringing, <laughs> from a intellectual. Perspective.
1: Which like o- almost nobody ever <laughs> says <laughs> You're I, only One person.
0: It's not like I loved every aspect of my upbringing, but yeah. I love that particular because it was very unique, it was very intellectual tradition to actually think about where things come from and the meaning of them and the symbolism behind it. That was something I was definitely trained and conditioned to do. So yeah, I think that the seeds of that were definitely in my, in that religious upbringing, so.
1: Right, but I think that's also a misconception about religion is that Mm -hmm. it's non-questioning or that Mm -hmm. doubt is not, you know, skepticism and doubt are not part of it. Whereas they're really at the core Yeah. Well, the confronting doubt. Don't
0: tell my parents that, because
1: ironically,
0: I always joke that they. I don't think they realize the extent to which. Maybe they do. I don't know, but I don't know that they realize the extent to which they opened up Pandora's box with giving me this tradition, because the tradition is and was a questioning tradition. But what that inevitably meant inevitably meant was that I would have the. License to question what i was taught as well so it's sort of and the tools. self-updating yeah it's a self-updating thing right but yeah that's the beauty it, that's the paradox because like i said earlier it had that orthodoxy but it also had that inquisitiveness and the tension between the two i guess led to some of the things that i'm doing right now
1: so going back to these sort of icons of pop culture that your fundamental tenet there is that we love these symbols because they show us the ability to achieve our potential. Yes. And when you're saying, okay, great, so how do I harness that? How do do I leverage that?
0: How do I essentially synthesize this into, well, what was initially, initially was the discovery of that. And then in tandem with, you know, I was reading a lot of research books about pop culture at the time. I was reading a book called Enchantment by Guy Kawasaki, the former marketing director of Apple, who defined enchantment as a process by which you delight someone who talked about, you know, how Apple and Steve Jobs did this initially with the design of the Mac and the design of Apple products. And that really spoke to me, but also the concept of enchantment was already embedded in the Disney pantheon. Um, So I just decided to call this process enchantment because it's like almost awakening to the fact of your own existence and the fact of your own potential and consequently the fact of the potential of others that are around you and it's a very enchanting and alluring and really wonderful in the literal sense of the word like full of wonder experience so yeah and then you know I took that and I basically created a three-principle framework on how to try to engender or cultivate enchantment in your interactions with people specifically when you had to talk about difficult conversations with people so like I was talking I was lecturing on many college campuses about the Israeli Palestinian conflict and it would oftentimes erupt especially in college days but oftentimes erupt into just like shouting matches and I'm obsessed with this idea that you can hack into human psychology so <laughs> I was just like but can you design a framework where people are less likely to erupt into shouting matches and more likely to give people the benefit of the doubt and more likely to be generous with their assumptions and to uh, greet each other with like unconditional positive regard. Like, so the three principles are mm-hmm. really, that I designed around this concept of enchantment were designed to try to do that. And the three principles are treat people like human beings, not political abstractions. If you wanna to criticize, criticize to uplift and empower, never to tear down, never to destroy unroot everything you do in love and compassion. Mm -hmm. So I lectured on that for two years on college campuses in America and in Europe, and actually once in South Africa, which was cool. (laughs) And, you know, people started responding very positively to it, number one. But number two, they were like, you know, this doesn't just apply to the realm of international studies. This applies to interpersonal conflict. This applies to... Social emotional learning in the classroom it applies to so many different things. Like, why don't you consider going out on your own and really going hard (laughs) with the enchantment? And enough people told me that I was just like. Okay. And so I did that. Who were those
1: people? Like friends or colleagues?
0: These were people at my talks. Like these were people like at the lectures, like during the Q&A. They would like say, make these comments. Also, some of my colleagues would say the same thing. I was working at the time for a Jewish nonprofit, formerly known as Jerusalem U. Now it's called Open Door Media. But yeah, I just kept getting that. And I was like, okay. So eventually I decided to go out on my own, started LLC, Theory of Enchantment. And then I turned it into a full course. So that was like when I went on my own, that was when I turned it into like a full 25 lesson course where it's like, okay, we're going to break down these three principles. When we talk about, you know, treat people like human beings not political abstractions. there's going to be an entire section on what does it actually mean to be a human being we're going to use pop culture and other rich sources to talk about what that means To talk about the human condition To talk about the things that every human being has to go through regardless of you know skin color or socioeconomic status or other immutable characteristics we're going to talk about vulnerability we're going to talk about mortality we're going to talk about imperfection like how do we actually Become content enough with ourselves, given that we all have to deal with this. Because what I kept noticing in terms of the pattern that produces not love, but I would say extremism, was very repeatable pattern. It was insecurity combined with self-contempt, combined with overcompensation for that, or for those two things that led to extremism. So it's like, okay, to work backwards, what we need here is a practice that can teach people to actually love themselves, (laughs) so that these other things don't Manifest themselves later on in very negative so, ways.
1: So, so say that again. It's insecurity.
0: Yeah, it's insecurity combined with self-contempt.
1: Self-contempt. Meaning what? Because we hear a lot of, about self-hatred. Yeah. What's self-contempt?
0: It's the same thing. It's it's like the it's like self-loathing. It's it's a, it's um, it's um, really a dislike of oneself because of that insecurity. So it's like one leads to another. It's not that it necessarily leads to another, but in the case of extremism, it leads to another.
1: So the product is, is necessarily extremism, or when there is extremism, those two factors are involved?
0: The main important factor that synthesizes or catalyzes those two things into extremism is overcompensation. Hmm. So it's when you, when you are feeling those two things and that's a crisis of meaning and then you need to, let's take a very easy example of like gang life, right? Like if you are living in a home where let's say your father walked out on the family, so now you're dealing with issues of fatherlessness, you're thinking, oh why does my father not care about me enough to, to leave me all of a sudden? Like am I not good enough? Am I not? do I not belong? Am I not, you know, worthy of his time? So that insecurity, the insecurity piece is the father leaving. And Mm. then the self contempt piece is where the mind begins to think, I'm not good good enough. I'm not worthy enough. I'm not blank enough. And then the overcompensation is when a person gravitates toward a place or a group that's going to give them a sense of belonging and a sense of meaning. And for many, that's the gang life, um, which is populated with other people who have experienced that same insecurity. uh, and And, And power.
1: I imagine that's part of it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it is power in the sense that it gives you, it fills the void, it gives you a sense of security, right? It's false security, but it does give you that sense of security. And, you know, gang, um, what would you call it, mentality is on the spectrum of extremism, but a lot of studies show, for example, that, like, the people who gravitate towards gang life and the people who gravitate towards, let's say, white nationalist movements are dealing fundamentally with the same psychological issues. Mm-hmm. So yes, i tell have to say theory of enchantment is like, okay, how do we <laughs> try to thwart this process, you know, and build a sense of inner contentment, security, within human beings so that they don't feel the need to gravitate toward these other organizations and things like that.
1: I mean, the pop culture thing is really cool because yeah. it's like exactly what you intended, which is that you're kind of using the gravitational pull the attractiveness of pop culture, that energy that we love to get people to tap into something else inside themselves. But the the question I have about it is, especially for someone with with a religious background or upbringing, how do you square it with the materialism of pop culture? Because at the end of the day, pop culture is wonderful if it's in addition to something else. But, you know, in, in and of itself, it's materialist and it's consumerist obviously, and it's, you know, vain, as uh, vanity of vanities, Ecclesiastes would say. So how do you find something fundamental inside of pop culture to...
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't think that... I'm. It's possible that you and I are defining pop culture differently, because I consider the book of Ecclesiastes, you know, it to be a part of pop culture. It is popular and it is a part of our culture. So I mean pop culture in a very basic sense, not in a necessarily consumerist sense, right? So there's the Lion King in the theory of enchantment, but there's also stoicism in the theory of enchantment. And in fact, I argue quite persuasively, I think, that the Lion King <laughs> is super popular because it contains stoic teachings. Um, and my theory is that if we argue that there are certain ideas that are timeless then we should expect to find them in contemporary form Mm -hmm. and so what I'm just doing and when it comes to like certain things that that I think have the veneer of merely being consumerist what I'm doing is I'm pulling back, back the layers and I'm saying actually there's something far more deep about our gravitational pull toward this and it is not merely vain and those things that we do gravitate toward because of vanity or because of you know uh, selfish reasons are not going to stand the test of time. But I do think like films like The Lion King will, for example, <laughs> because they contain timeless virtues and timeless ideas about how to navigate being a human being and how to navigate the difficulty and the frailty of life. I don't know if that's a sufficient answer, but
1: yeah, no, it's a it's a great point, and you know, it makes me think about Nike. Because as simple, simple and almost seemingly simplistic as the slogan is, just do it. Yeah. The more you think about it, the more you're like, that is absolutely brilliant. You know, what yeah. I mean? like before that existed, <laughs> yeah. no one was being, no one was just being like just do it as an aspirational thing. It may be a yep. command or something, but the moment he he grabbed that idea, I don't know. Maybe the rest of the Nike magic, the greatness of the shoes and everything else, flowed from that. The bigness of the idea. It's like a big bang. yeah.
0: I think also, first of all, I think 100% it did, I think, and also that's the moment that Nike became, in the eyes of many, quite frankly, a religion. There's a reason why, you know, you have these people who call themselves shoeheads and want to collect as many, uh, you know, new releases of Nikes uh, as possible. And it's not strictly materialist. It's like mm-hmm. a talisman. It's like a, it's a very mm-hmm. religious thing, or it's re- very much drawing from the religious impulse within human beings. Much more than it, is. it happens to be that it's a materialistic representation, right? But it's a it, it reflects a brilliant insight into human nature, and also everyone I think should read Shoe Dog, which is a great book that explains the you know how Phil okay. Knight did. I'll order that one. How he created Nike, but uh, it's, it, I read it in four hours. It's so good. Wow. It's a real page turner.
1: Okay, yeah, no, that's a great point. So where do you go from here with your even chairman? Like, what's your vision, and where are you now in the in pursuing it? Yeah.
0: Yes, yeah, so that's a good question. So, you know, Theory of Enchantment is a full course, full training. We sell to three different cohorts. We sell to individuals. So if you're an individual, you can enroll in the course and, you know, do it yourself if you'd like. We sell to high schools as well, uh, social emotional learning program for teenagers. And we sell to companies. Professional development training, offering an approach to diversity and inclusion. That's rooted in developmental psychology. Again, that's rooted in that psychological understanding of where racism comes from. And also that's, that's much more holistic than a lot of the offerings that exist right now. So, you know, right now we're just trying to build, scale, really focusing primarily. I mean, it, like I said, those three categories or cohorts can buy it. But I'm really focusing right now on getting individual and company sales up because the high school, the school market, so to speak, is so fractured in America. It's even more fractured now because of the pandemic. So it's just a challenge to be able to deliver that in a scalable way. But Mm -hmm. Um, right now I'm focusing primarily on individuals and and companies to get this training it's also you know it's a long-term ongoing sort of educational experience it's not your typical for companies at least it's not your typical you know I come in and do a two-day workshop Mm -hmm. I could do that but I also will (laughs) what that comes with is this intensive 25 lesson course that you should deploy to your team's to give them the necessary skills to not only make the culture better, but just have a better relationship with themselves and show up as, you know, I think self starters more and, and wanting to make the company greater. So cool.
1: and what is life like for you right now in New York City or in York?
0: <laughs> Well, I mean, I feel like I you know when you watch like those shows about startups, like or or those those origin stories about Steve Jobs and stuff like mm-hmm. that. I feel like I'm now entering into that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that face okay. in, in
0: my life like I have a you know I have like a whiteboard in my room now you know it's like it's like it's like really okay startup life you know with all the trapping stuff that comes with so yeah I don't know that doesn't I don't know if that sounds romantic or not but I'm uh, just it, really it's probably
1: best that it is I mean
0: yeah yeah no definitely definitely it's it's a good thing that i enjoy what i do (laughs) but yeah no i'm just like i'm really just focusing on trying to build theory of enchantment so that's what life is like right now in new york i mean you know obviously going to manhattan manhattan is a little bit kind of a ghost town i've been reading all these Mm -hmm. pieces in the times about like how businesses are shuttering and it's really depressing and i want you know property values are going down people are moving to the suburbs you know i'm wondering about i mean i know new york will come back like it's But, like, the question is, like, what's the timeline? (laughs) You know, I actually have no idea, given the cascading effect of all of these like brand name businesses closing and stuff you know Mm -hmm. as well as mom and pop shops so so i don't know we'll see what happens in new york but i'm definitely planning on staying for a very long time and you know building theory of enchantment now so
1: where do you go book shopping in new york city or where did you well
0: (laughs) yeah i mean i would go to strand Mm -hmm. you know which is like their classic
1: of course Mechanism. But I
0: would usually, but I would usually, honestly, just order books online because online. I have to, I have a pretty, if there's one addiction that I have, it's that, it's to books. So,
1: um, yeah, I get you. You know,
0: like I, I actually had to make myself a note this month to not order any books this month. <laughs> that's
1: Well, how that's bad the it thing, because you're, you, you live in the U.S. and Amazon, like, we, my wife and I talk about this, we're like, imagine just being able to get a book in two days. <laughs> any <book> for, <laughs> for us, it's like this, yeah thing like it takes three weeks it doesn't show up it takes
0: three weeks
1: yeah because amazon doesn't ship here well they do but it's expensive and the books don't ship here so you have to use book depository which is slower and then israel's postal system is like teetering on the brink so it just it's chaotic but on the other side of it because i would also just be like just gluttonous you know and it would just (laughs) like my house is just overflowing so it's good actually so yeah like i really need to want that book to go through
0: (laughs) the thing is though also with me like theory of enchantment is such a such an ongoing educational project that it almost requires that i constantly Mm -hmm. be reading and i am like i'm reading like four books right now but what are they I'm reading yeah. The Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky, Ooh,
1: nice. which
0: is pretty awesome
1: yeah. and really
0: funny. I didn't expect it to be funny, but it's funny. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm reading... Because I just read Crime and Punishment. and Crime and Punishment was not funny, but not this one funny. is funny. Not
1: funny book, yeah.
0: I'm reading... Transcend by Scott Barry Kaufman, which is about the psychological observations of Abraham Maslow and his hierarchy of needs. Mm -hmm. I'm reading The Lean Startup. Mm -hmm. I forgot the name of the author, but yeah. Eric Reese. Yeah, yeah.
1: We used to I used to represent him in the What? Yeah.
0: Small world. Yeah,
1: we represented that book in the PR. That's crazy. Editorial Director. Yeah. Yeah.
0: that's that's so what a coincidence yeah <laughs> that's so random and what's the fourth one i'm reading i'm reading a really depressing book about
1: aside from brothers I,
0: I don't find that book depressing at all actually i don't think it's depressing you thought you thought it was depressing
1: i did find don't tell it... me
0: what happened by the way
1: no no <laughs> it, even if i wanted to i actually i couldn't but i think it was it, yeah it was hard it was you um, know you know existentially hard you're just like okay <laughs>
0: I find it very funny. I also think I know where, where it's going, so maybe that's why I don't find it depressing. Mm. But there's a book I'm reading by Alice Miller, who was a famous child psychologist, who argued that child-rearing practices, certainly in the in the 20th century, were heinous and <laughs> were also responsible for some of the worlds, or for helping to create the conditions in which some of the most brutal dictators huh. rose to power.
1: Whoa! Yeah, that's oh, it's called.
0: It's called for your own good. <laughs> so, wow!
1: Yeah. Wow, that sounds fascinating. Yeah. And probably very true. Whatever Stalin's mama did to him.
0: Yeah. Couldn't have been Stalin, good. Hitler. Like a lot of them were, like almost beaten within an inch of their lives when they were oh like my God. 11 years old. Or that yeah, That's so crazy. Yeah.
1: Oof. All right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> on that note. On that note. So those the four to books kids. that I... <laughs> Those are the four books that I'm. I I'm can see the right the now. one
1: the one title I can make out on your shelf is I think it's Amos Elon's Herzl above your left shoulder other direction yeah Herzl uh, I
0: don't know but is this is my room, this is my roommate's so. oh
1: it's your roommate's yeah. okay
0: yeah. we're very yeah. we like reading in this household <laughs> as you can That's see the way to go. yeah the way so. to go
1: well this is great this is interesting do you, is there anything else you want to to share I saw like, you got a podcast.
0: Oh, yeah. Talk a
1: little about that.
0: So, I mean, I'm working on a bunch of things. We can also talk about music if you want, because I also do music production. Well,
1: yeah. Uh,
0: (laughs) So, side note, we just came out, me and my friend Jamie Kilstein just came out with a new podcast today called So Much Things to Say. Yes, it's dramatically incorrect. Thank you. Yes, it's dramatically incorrect. We actually named it after Bob Marley's song, So Much Things to Say. So, which song is that? Look it up. Check it out. Uh I think when you'll hear it, you'll be like, oh yeah, but it's basically a podcast where we talk about everything going on in the world, um, and in particular in America, but we also have like a very artistic approach to how we talk about everything, and art and spirituality are like massive components of the podcast, mm, so
1: cool. Um, check sounds, it out. Sounds really cool. Yeah, Sounds going to
0: be pretty good. So, and music. Yeah, so I started producing music last year, really love it. Meaning what? Meaning I would, you know, last year I produced, I don't know, a total of maybe 12 songs, put it out on uh, uh, SoundCloud. And then this year I put like, I think like seven or eight of the best into one album and published it on Spotify. So if you actually go to Spotify, mm-hmm. you can find my music under my name, Chloe Valdery. So name of the album. Say,
1: when you say producing, you don't mean like for a third party. You mean like. No, no. self You're in the music. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You're You're, you're making music.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that the right word? Am I using the right word or the uh, wrong word?
1: I would say I, I don't know, but okay. I would say making.
0: Okay, so I'm making music. I started making music last <laughs> <Yeah>. year.
1: <laughs> As of now, I <laughs> started.
0: I started making music last year. I have an album out on on Spotify called Paradox. Oh,
1: cool. Okay, and so so how, how do you out. place that that type of music, your sound? What are your influences? Oh, how did you get to that to to this? This is a pretty big. I'm, pretty big thing.
0: <laughs> yeah honestly it started like two and a half years ago when I was I've been obsessed with this singer songwriter guitarist named Ben Howard out of the UK since I was in high school and two and a half years ago of watching Netflix and I was just like I need to learn guitar like why am I spending <laughs> my Summer's watching Netflix instead of learning guitar like this isn't ridiculous. So I decided to buy my best friend's guitar for 50 bucks Because she wasn't using it and I like learned basic guitar So that's where it started and then you know, just had fun with that and just started producing songs on GarageBand initially, um, which don't underestimate GarageBand people Steve Jobs specifically designed it to be a free music making piece of software so That people could easily make music at any time, so I never
1: underestimate anything. (laughs) Yeah,
0: yeah, like it's it can do some serious things. So, I initially started producing making music on GarageBand. You know, I bought a simple recorder with two mics from uh Guitar Center, and GarageBand has beats built in, so you can really compose a song. I started with that, and then I later on graduated to Logic, so I finally bought Logic which is like a more expensive garage bed, um, but the same interface and, you know, started uh, experimenting with that. And, you know, it's just vocals and sounds and, you know, I'm really proud of what I've produced so far. I have this real serious fantasy to one day perform concerts, putting that out in the universe. Like I really oh, want I to do know. that when COVID is over. Uh, so, so yeah, I, I enjoy it. It's a very meditative experience for me. So yeah.
1: Sweet. Well, once you start it, come perform in Israel. I know.
0: Oh yeah! Oh my God! You, you imagine with the when I perform in Israel, it's gonna be insane. <laughs> it's gonna be great. It's gonna be wild. It's gonna be wild because like Israel's like that's my heart and soul in many many ways. So yeah, it's gonna be. I plan on performing in Israel like after I've gotten really popular, and so it's like a big deal once I go to Israel.
1: <laughs> you know. <laughs> you could also go the other way around and like win over their hearts here. You know. That's and they true. Keep coming back and they're like oh she's still. Yeah, she's that's. She's famous true. and she's still coming back. That's.
0: It's just expensive to fly to Israel, so. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> I have to work out those details logistically, but but yeah, wow. no, I I would love to perform there one day.
1: So yellow, yeah, yeah. as we say.
0: <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, I would say also one last thing. One of my biggest influences in music is Sade. Like I grew up listening to Sade. I think her style is so cool. It definitely influenced. And it's funny because someone actually listened to a song on my album and he was like, Are you influenced by Shade? And I was like, You're the first person to to get that. So because you asked me wow. what my influences were. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: That's great. And it's also great to know your influences because then yeah. it's respectful, it gives you direction and it and it differentiates you because you're aware. Yeah. I think that's really important.
0: Do you think that there are a lot of artists that aren't aware of their influences?
1: Tons. I think the good ones are aware I think the great ones are for sure aware And they're like in awe of The influencers And I think a lot of people in the middle I think actually I forget who said it It was a book on writing that I read A well-known author, woman And she's saying the reason you need to read So much as a writer Is because Even without reading those other authors You'll mimic their style because their style's in the culture You just won't know Um. it She's saying when you when you read their work even though writers be like well i don't want to start to sound like this author or that author but it's the opposite she says that because you're familiar with their style you can recognize it when it pops up in your own work and be like okay Uh, so that was a great point
0: yeah and i also think that like to reiterate it's important to reiterate your earlier advice which is like if you're an artist and you're having like imposter syndrome like the first song i made was a song called imposter which mm. was an attempt cool. to like deal with and challenge my imposter syndrome, you know, head on. So I it's, think artists I, need to. Uh,
1: it's tough. I don't know that it ever really goes away.
0: Well, it's interesting because anytime I tell people I have imposter syndrome, they're like, "But do you really?" Because it doesn't sound like that. That's what that is. <laughs> so I don't know. I think the nervousness is always there, but it's yes. a, it's like a muscle, yeah. Yeah. It's like a muscle that you keep exercising, and the more you exercise it, the less intense it becomes i think that's yeah
1: for sure that that's something i actually heard a great interview with hugh jackman mm. with tim Ferriss, and he talks about that he just mentions it casually the nervousness of going on stage and how like how he's just coping yeah. with this nerve, or, or actually talked about it going on tv he's like you have oh. all that being so nervous and like oh wow this guy who's been <laughs> acting for 30 years like a mega star is still yeah. nervous and of course he is and just like every author before I remember we, at the PR firm where I work, we bring in big-name authors and journalists, and once it was Ann Coulter, just because she's like, such a huge profile. Like, a yeah. person. So yeah. she came and talked to us, and she was about to release a book, and she was like, she wasn't just saying she was scared it was going to bomb. She was living that fear. You know oh, what I mean? Wow. And this is a yeah. woman who's probably sold how many million copies who knows yeah. and has got, like, a machine and a mechanism, and she was terrified. Wow. And I think it's just part of being... a a
0: person, yeah. A, per-
1: a person, but the pro because the pro <laughs> continues to face it and get yeah. past it, whereas the amateur doesn't. And the amateur just guys yeah, 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 yeah. away, be like, no, it's not. I don't, want, I don't want to feel that.
0: Yeah, and it sucks because there's so much life to be lived, <laughs> you know, yeah. beyond the fear of nerves and things like that. Yeah. So yes. Yeah. yeah. I encourage artists to be courageous and just do it, as Nike.
1: It, it, there you, you go, know. bringing it back. That's a hundred percent it. And and I think for people to understand, just like what you did with the guitar, you okay. start, you pick up the guitar and learn basic guitar. You know, what yeah. I mean? you're not becoming Eric Clapton. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like maybe in twenty years. That's
0: not even in twenty years. Yeah.
1: <laughs> maybe never, you know, maybe yeah. maybe one day, maybe fifty yeah. years you'll be here Yeah. If you just but I think what people miss is that the constant trip, drip, trip, trip, drip, yeah, trip. You don't need to have a flood of time or energy. Just yeah. Anyways. Thank you so much. This is great. What you're doing is awesome. And thank you. I'm going to listen to your music and I'm going to, I hope I could embed a song in the interview.
0: Yeah, so, that'd be cool. Um,
1: text. Thank, thank you, you for inviting si- me It was, to your it was show. really nice to finally meet you after all these years of reading you.
0: <laughs> Likewise, Ashley, I appreciate
1: it. All right, Kelly. thank you. All right, take care. Bye. Bye.
0: Thank you for listening. If you like this episode, head over to TheBurningCastle.com to gain access to all interviews and tweet us at Burning Castle if you have feedback on this week's episode. Be sure to tune in for the next episode.